Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, where each week I will talk to marketing leaders from the biggest B2B brands in the world to understand their mindset, discover growth strategies and what it takes to be successful. This week I sat down with David Turner. You'll love this one because he shares his thoughts about the power of the brand, what he learned combining 40 separate identities into one at Unit 4, and the reality challenges and opportunities of building PE-backed businesses. Also find out why being a part-time farmer boosts his creativity and how sitting on top of a ton of animal can really focus the mind. From the CMO crowd, this is How to Grow a CMO. My guest today is David Turner, CMO and growth champion at Iris Software Group. He's an experienced data-led marketer with a big background in cloud and SaaS software and high-tech marketing, having led Unit 4, NetSuite, and now Iris. David Turner, welcome to How to Grow a CMO. Hi there. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you. So you started life as a physicist, not the usual entry for most marketers. What attracted you to marketing then in the first place? Well, yes, it's not the usual route. Um, basically, having done physics, I went into physics publishing and and, and then into journalism, uh, writing for publications like The New Scientist and, and The Australian and things like that, uh, newspaper. And uh I then got a job uh, as a sort of technology writer within a fiber optics company, actually, as it happened. Um, got fairly bored with what I was doing, writing about very technical equipment, but the job happened to be within the marketing team. And I and I sort of saw what they were doing and I thought, actually, that looks really interesting. So I started doing some PR writing and bits for them, writing articles and things because of my journalism background. And then I went to night school, basically, and, and, and got my postgraduate certificate and then my diploma in marketing. And then went out and got a job as a communica- marketing communications manager. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. It's been up and up ever since. And you really have had an incredible career. But if you were to codify the success factors that led to your outperformance in the CMO role, what would they be? Well, I think I've always approached marketing as being uh, very much, it's very much about um, communications and being uh, integrated into every part of the company. So I've always found it very important to work with every other team, every other department within the company, um, because I think, you know, sometimes marketing works as an island uh, and that is not... It's not how it should be. And I think certainly, I guess, in terms of how my career progressed, that got me into all sorts of other areas around product and development and bringing new products to market um, around, you know, working on uh, flotations, public listings, delistings, acquisitions, all sorts. So I was always, you know, working with other teams on on areas that are outside of just core marketing. Uh, And I think that was really important. And I that that connection with stakeholders across the business, I think, is what sort of starts to define you as as more than just a, a, a marketing manager or a marketing, you know, sort of head of marketing and more gets you into that C-level role because you have a much more strategic view across the organization and an understanding of where marketing can make an impact. 
So rather than being an island, you're like the water flowing around that island into every part of the business. Yeah, well, I think marketing has a has a really important role, uh, you know, as I say, across the company. Um, look, I think, you know, fundamentally, I, I think, um, for example, you know, there's often this conflict between sales and marketing in an organisation. And, and when I first started in marketing, I sort of clocked that sales is basically our customer and that, you know, if marketing isn't producing leads for the sales team and making the sales team successful so they're selling selling products and, and making revenue, then everything else we do in marketing is actually pointless because the company's going to, you know, not make money and, and go out of business. So I always, you know, we started working really closely with sales and that was very important. Um, and then in doing that, as I say, I, I, I sort of realised that, you know, product, for example, and working with the product team so that you could be part of, of bringing products to market and influencing that process and feeding feeding back from marketing into product development became very important. And, uh, yeah, as I say, it just sort of built from there. And I really do think fundamentally that marketing is and should be involved in every part of the company. You're listening to How to Grow, a CMO podcast from the CMO crowd. So let's talk about your time at Unit 4. In 2010, you were responsible for rebranding the group No Mean Feet because it comprised of 40 different brands at the time. And as a result of your work, it became the sixth largest supplier of ERP software in the world. Tell us about the skills that you needed to employ to ensure that you had that kind of seamless transition. Yeah, so ju- just as background, um, Unit 4 actually bought Coda, who, which was the company I was um, I was involved in. I was the head of marketing there. And um, they had been going around the world buying up uh, software companies for many years. And so they'd acquired, as I say, about 40 different brands. And they tended to just kind of leave them to it. And they would maybe inject a bit of capital or they would change the management or they would do whatever was needed to make them successful. But they didn't. They were very hands off. They were like a holding company. When they bought Coda, we were such a big acquisition for them. They bought us off the London Stock Exchange that it, they, it created all sorts of conflicts within the organisation. And so I think they recognised they had to do something. Uh, so they didn't even have marketing in the centre at the time. So, the, you know, I, I took over as sort of or took on the role of, of heading up marketing globally. And I could see that having these disparate brands that were all doing much the same thing, you know, HR software, finance software, ERP around the world, just it didn't didn't add up you know i would go to i would go to an office in madrid or in singapore or whatever and the people there saw themselves just as part of you know 200 people in madrid or or 150 people in singapore they didn't realize they were part of a 5000 strong company globally and i thought well if if internally people don't think that then externally clearly they just see us as a bag of bits i mean we were just this you know as i say this bag of of completely disconnected brands even though we were in the same markets so i just thought it was really important to bring that together and one clear way of doing that was uh, by branding it and you know giving it a single name across the world so that we could then project a single image a single face to the to, to the market and to the world and just how powerful was that having that single brand instead of the bag of bits as you described it well it, it was very powerful but 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 getting there was really hard. I mean, persuading people internally for doing it was was extremely um, tough because you know everybody wanted to, to cling on to their own brand, and 
and and they all felt that if they lost their their brand locally that it would destroy things and the company would fall apart and it literally took me two years to persuade the company to do it because they weren't convinced that this new brand this this new single brand across the world was going was worth it was going to really deliver anything and they thought that i would break everything um and it was two years you know you talk about the skills i need it was two years of of almost like politically going around and winning over stakeholders country by country and talking to country managers and 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 marketing teams around the around the group and getting them on board and getting them to see that you know we could be the sum of the parts would be greater than the whole so when we eventually did it the power of it was actually amazing so you know you you mentioned that fact that we we went from literally not being on the radar of anybody globally any of the analyst groups like Gartner and Forrester and, and uh, IDC and those sort of things, just suddenly uh, we became the sixth biggest ERP company in the world because suddenly there was this company of 5,000 uh, people and, and uh, you know, uh, actually quite considerable revenue, half a billion dollar revenue that they'd never noticed because we'd never projected this single image. And then as soon as we were in the top 10, you know, we're number six at the ERP, we suddenly, you, you're getting on to... Um, you're being asked to tender by companies and you're getting on short lists and long lists from companies. So it actually starts to transform the business in a really tangible way because, you know, you're actually, you're on people's radar. Do you think that some CMOs and would-be uh, CMOs might underestimate that need to master the art of persuasion? Because it's a, it must have been a really tricky task trying to do that and persuade all of those individual entities to share your vision. Yes, I, th- I definitely think uh, people underestimate it. I, again, I think you know I said at the outset that marketing is really about you know engaging with stakeholders right across the business. It's really important that you do that, and I, I think then being able to do that and being able to share your vision, connect it to the the local priorities the local kind of imperatives that, that organizations have got and trying to get them to understand uh, the benefits of, of what we were doing and the benefits of being part of this greater whole is it's absolutely critical and it, it, it's a difficult you know it's a difficult one to sort of teach people but I think again it's part of this if you understand what sales is about and you, you look beyond marketing you understand the sort of challenges of sales and what they're priorities are and how they think and then you start to understand how other teams think in the company when you start going and engaging with stakeholders around the world you can relate to them and you can talk to them about the benefits and you know whilst they would always say oh yeah oh our local you know our local brand's really important they would also at the sort of next breath say yeah but nobody really knows us and we need you know we just spend more on brand building and I would sort of say, well, you can't have it both ways. Is the brand well known or is it not well known? And, oh, well, we're known in this market, but we're not known outside of it. And, and then I tried to sort of get them to understand that if we were part of this global brand, you know, imagine if you were Nike or if you were Apple, if you, you know, if you had that brand behind you, you'd be able to sell more, wouldn't you? You'd be more successful. Um, and so it was just trying to get that vision over to them. Uh, it was made difficult. I'll be honest, it was it was not made easy because the. The CEO at the time, who had owned the company, founded the company, um, was not convinced. So he sort of said to me, well, if you can go and persuade everyone, then you can do it. And if not, we won't. And uh, so so it was uh, was not made easy by that. But in the end, he backed me as well. And that was really important. 
So you certainly displayed your political skills. And what would you say that you've taken from that experience to your other roles as CMO at NetSuite and now Iris? Well, as I said, very much about working with stakeholders and engaging with stakeholders uh, early on and, and, and constantly. So, you know, not necessarily when you want to ask them to do something radical, but actually if you don't have a relationship before you go and ask them to completely transform their business or drop the brand they've been using for 10 years or, or do things in a different way. If you haven't already got that relationship, then it, it's that much harder. So I think really important to build relationships across across the business. And I think, you know, as I said, that's the, that's the difference between a, a sort of a head of marketing and a, and a CMO is you need to build those stakeholder relationships around the business. The other thing that it taught me, I'd done some branding beforehand, but the big thing that I always try to persuade people, although they never believe you, is that in six months' time, you'll have forgotten this ever happened. So they will, people will cling on to their old brand. They'll cling on to it and they'll swear blind that if you change this logo, if you change our name, it's going to destroy the business. It'll never do it. The customers will hate it. The staff will hate it. And then you do it. Six months later, they've forgotten about it. They've moved on. They're in the new brand. They love it. They suddenly realize they're part of this bigger organization and it's incredible people have very short memories uh, and i found that again and again in branding we just got to pummel through and then brush your lapels afterwards <laughs> just very quietly <laughs> but you can't yes but you still have to bring them with you i mean like i say you can't just sort of drive it bulldoze it through without bringing people with you because um that that will be tough you're listening to how to grow a cmo podcast from the cmo crowd the CMO Crowd is brought to you by The Marketing Practice, the global integrated agency delivering growth for big-name tech brands and ambitious B2B companies around the world. To find out more about us, visit themarketingpractice.com. So in 2015, you ran marketing in Amir for NetSuite, a business unit within Oracle. What was the growth challenge for you there and how did you approach it? So when I arrived at NetSuite, NetSuite was actually independent at the time, uh, when I first arrived. Uh, and it was a very successful company in North America. Fantastic. One, it was the first ever SaaS business company or cloud, cloud company in, in the business world. And uh, really, really well known in, in North America, but actually not well known in Europe. And in fact, we only had one office in the UK and uh, a few hundred people and the rest of Europe was just um, serviced through partners. We didn't have any other offices and, and therefore the brand was not well known. So the, the challenge, but the opportunity was actually to grow. They wanted us to grow um, the brand, grow the organization across Europe. So again, I was very much part of a management team that was tasked with growing the organization across EMEA. And we started doing that quite successfully and we, we, we were starting to open offices um and to to get the brand out there and then a year in oracle bought us and that actually was fantastic because uh, oracle was 100 percent behind us and about behind that growth they 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 really wanted us to to become successful and go for a kind of land grab because cloud ERP was growing uh, at a really massive rate at that point so they actually started uh, pouring money into us. So my budget actually, my marketing budget increased 11 fold overnight. Uh, and uh, which, which you can't, you know, yeah, that's a one, one, once in a career kind of opportunity. Um, so we had the advantage of a huge backer and, and 
considerable funds. Um, the challenge was still, actually, the challenge was just the speed we were growing at. So, we, you know, for example, our sales team, we went from 20 people in sales to 180 people in sales in about three years. So we were, it was all about you know, just onboarding salespeople and onboarding marketing people. The marketing team went from four people to 30 people in just a few years. So onboarding people, ramping them up and getting them operational and, and out there was was a, a challenge. So there were a lot of operational challenges. Um, and then from a marketing point of view, it was building the brand. It was working with analysts and uh, media and big business organizations and customers to really kind of believe in what we were doing. Um, different countries were at different stages of a cloud adoption. So we went into the Nordics. The Nordics are actually very advanced in cloud. They love it. They were absolutely on board, thought it was definitely kind of the future and and and, and we were really well accepted. But in Germany, for example, which was, was a sort of much slower to adopt cloud uh, technology, uh, particularly in the business software realm, it was much harder and you had very entrenched competition as well. SAP was, you know, they've been around for years and was a massive competitor. So it was very much around, you know, gaining credibility, getting customers locally, and then building on those customer successes and, uh, and then building the brand and the story around them. Now, they were very data-driven company, how did you then balance the importance of driving leads with building the brand? Obviously, building the brand was the priority that you were given, but of course, you still had to do, had to achieve other objectives. Yes. I mean, you're rarely just allowed to build brand and not worry about anything else. So no, we had to, we, we had to build the brand, but also actually feed the sales team. You know, it was very much about demand generation and they are very focused on uh, yeah, on, on growing sales. So what we were building there was was a high volume inbound demand generation model. Um, and it's very much that, I guess, Silicon Valley SaaS company model, which I'd seen before, uh, about 10 years before I'd worked, uh, partnered with uh, Salesforce about 2005, 2006 in a, in a SaaS organization. And I saw how they how they ran it at Salesforce. And, and NetSuite uh, was very much on that model as well. So it was about pushing content out through uh, content syndication, uh, through you know, using, uh, because you didn't have a big data set or a big audience yourself, a big customer base, you would push content out through publisher networks, through um, organizations like industry bodies or accounting associations and all those sort of things and, and publisher networks. Uh, and then driving people to, you know, when they downloaded those, you drive or, or they interacted with those, you would get that data, bring that in and then follow that up. Um, we, we built a, we built an in-house business development um, set up pretty much from scratch. We had about five or 10 people when I joined and we had uh, about a hundred or more um, within the sort of three, four years, uh, hundred, these were mostly graduates who were just following up on all of these leads and in 15 languages as well so pretty complex very complex yeah yeah you're listening to how to grow a cmo podcast from the cmo crowd so let's move on to when you joined iris in 
March 2021. Tell us a bit more about uh, the company and just how you've got about transforming the team and becoming more data-driven. Sure. So Iris Iris is a, a bit of a, a gem of the British software um, sector, really. It's been around a long time, more than 40 years, and is not terribly, probably not terribly well known. But uh, what, what Iris does is provide mission-critical software for a whole range of sectors. It, it, its core sector has always been the accountancy sector, so it provides software to accounting practices that uh, help it stay compliant and run their business and support SMEs in, in the work that accountants do. Uh, that's very much the heart of the business and it's still a core focus for us, but we also have a couple of other really key markets for us. One is education, so um, all of education up to uh, age 18, so nurseries, preschools, schools, uh, and colleges, and we we provide software to run those whole organisations from MIS management information systems right through to you know the, the the swipe cards when you're checking in or the the um, cashless catering systems and all of that sort of stuff. And then the third area is actually SMEs and mid market organisations where we provide HR, payroll, uh, and all of the sort of mission critical software to run those companies and. One of our claims to fame is that one in five people in the UK is paid through our software, our payroll software. So we're a very influential company, but actually quite below the radar because a lot of the software is sort of in the back office, if you like, keeping industry ticking over rather than necessarily in people's kind of in your face. The challenge I had when I came was the, the organization has grown very much by acquisition, especially in the last few years, many acquisitions. Uh, a bit similar to the Unit 4 experience. But uh, they, they'd taken on a lot of marketing people from different organizations and found them roles, but they weren't necessarily in the right roles. And the marketing organization was not particularly digitally focused and it wasn't data-driven. So the challenge which I was given was to transform it to become more data-driven and more digital. So that involved restructuring the team considerably, um, very much trying to focus around a digital model where we're doing more of that sort of inbound that I talked about at NetSuite, where we're getting people to contact us rather than us constantly going out and contacting them. Uh, and we're getting better data and better understanding about what it is we're doing so that we can um, so we can measure and test and do all of the things that, that we should be doing with data. Um, it's made, it is a challenge at, at somewhere like Iris because of all of the acquisitions. There's so many uh, so many products and so many companies that have become part of the organization. And we're constantly acquiring. So we, we acquire at least 10 companies a year. At the moment, actually, we're, we're slightly above that because we slowed down during COVID. So you're always dealing with a with a, an environment which is ch constantly changing with new products, new markets, new solutions. And we're expanding into North America now, which is a big focus. So uh, big focus on digital uh, and a big focus on trying to get uh, better data and better insights into what we're doing. So Iris is a private equity-backed business. So what's the reality of building a company that is private equity-backed? Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting experience for me because it's the first my first experience with with private equity. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, the thing with private equity is obviously they're always looking for growth. Uh, and I've been, at all, most of my companies I've worked with have been 
been high growth, but uh, this is this is on steroids really. And there's always a high level of acquisition, uh, as I say. So you know, we've made at least ten or twelve acquisitions in the last um, actually about eight or ten months. So you're trying to balance building brand, building the organization, trying to build the perfect marketing team whilst everything is constantly changing around you because you know it's a very fluid sort of um, sort of environment so more more so than I think uh, you know I've experienced in the past and also to be honest you know because of the way private equity works it's always trying to do things more efficiently trying to uh, get more get growth uh, higher rates of growth with uh, kind of lower rates of, of um, cost if you like so that's where that digital model is really important getting that right and there's a lot of focus on refining improving processes and measuring processes as well um, so it's challenging but it's exciting it's really great and how do you communicate to the board that brand really adds value and how can you quantify the value of a brand do you link tangible outcomes to it yeah it's this sort of thing's always uh, difficult well it's difficult but but actually you have some interesting conversations so so talking to hg who is our private equity uh, company that owns us you know they they absolutely understand that there's fa- there's a value in brand in that it's something you can put on the on the balance sheet uh, and sort of measure um, but also it's just um, you know you can you can measure certain things like for example we, we measure the amount of traffic on the website and all of the sort of conversion rates that come from that. And when you then do a, a large brand building activity, so we've just recently done um, what we're calling Masters of Time, or, or Time to Grow is the campaign, uh, where we've been offering offering uh, SMEs, all of our software products at 50% off to help companies grow in these difficult times. And we introduced these Masters of Time, which is a sort of brand concept. And, and it's been on buses and in the underground and in, you know on the side of football and rugby pitches and and uh, on the metro in Manchester and everywhere. So really, the first time actually this company's ever done that sort of out of home uh, advertising. And obviously, great level of sort of, of trepidation around, you know, what it's going to what it was going to produce, but you can very quickly measure things like web traffic, which, you know, as soon as we had the first football ads, for example, the web traffic starts going up, the number of people calling in, on the phones goes up, um, the number of forms filled. Although, so there are some really tangible measures which, okay, aren't directly brand awareness, but obviously indicate that that brand activity you're putting out there is driving um, interaction, engagement from the audience. So, uh, you know, I think that's a really easy and tangible way of showing the impact of brand. And, and I think the challenge will be, of course, going taking that forward and showing that that has a longer term uh, positive effect, but I think uh, I'm very convinced that it will. And how much of your role would you say is focused on growing the category you're in, as opposed to taking market share from someone else? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when you're in the SME market, so I've noted this before, uh, in particular, you're, a lot of that is around its greenfield sites. So, for example, we're selling pro- payroll software a lot of the small companies you're talking to don't have payroll software they're doing it you know on on a on excel spreadsheet um or um you know in some sort of manual way and so 
you, you are very much growing the category. Uh, HR, for example, we've, we just introduced a, a fantastic HR product called Staffology, which uh, actually starts at, at, um, at sort of one to 10 employees. And you might think, well, why do they need HR software? But, but with that, that base level package, it just allows them to do things like, like um, handle um, holidays and, and uh, sicknesses and, and leave and so on alongside um, some of the basic paperwork and that. But it gives them the, the start of having some systems and processes in place, which actually are, are more important now because of legislation and all the compliance you have to do with around HR and payroll. So from that at that end of the market, we're very much growing the category. We're very much putting products into companies that didn't have those products before. At the more mid-market level, then absolutely you're you're competing with other other players. You're replacing older technology um, because it, it, this is all SaaS cloud technology. Um, so it's it's um, yeah very much competitive in that way. Um, when we look in our accountancy world, for example, with accountants. We've been working with accountants to try to get them to expand from just doing day-to-day -day administration, doing people's taxes and doing all of that, you know, sort of taking receipts and turning that into accounts and trying to give them tools that automate that process that allow them to do a lot of that administrative work through technology and then to become more advisors to, to SMEs, advisors to their customers. Um, using sort of analytics and, and dashboards and, and things. So again, we're very much expanding into technologies that at the moment those markets don't use. Sometimes trying to communicate the benefit of certain campaigns can be tricky. For example, if you advertise on the back of a bus, only a small proportion of those who actually see it will actually act on it. So how do you communicate that? To the board, if they're say questioning your strategy, yeah, I mean it's the age-old question, isn't it? The, the, the sort of cliche with marketing that fifty percent of your budget is always wasted. You don't know which, and, and of course with digital today, people think well they've got much better control over that, and I think that's true. When you start doing something like out of home, yeah, advertising on the back of buses, it's definitely something you have to think about. So yeah, we've very much started thinking about who's the audience, who are we trying to. To attack, and I mentioned that we've been doing this campaign, uh, and we, uh, which was about around helping us SMEs to grow. And so we we felt that as we wanted more and more to get to the SME market, and, and by SMEs I literally mean it can be sort of one, two, three person companies who could start using these HR and payroll um, solutions to make their businesses more efficient and more effective. That audience actually is quite big. You know, you are talking about millions and millions of people within the UK who are potential buyers of our of our software. And so you do need to have that sort of mass uh, advertising, that mass audience kind of reach. Um, at the end of the day, yeah, there are statistics. There are statistics which you can get around what are the sort of how many people do you expect to see an ad and then respond? You know, it can be something between one and a thousand um, and three in a thousand of people who see your advert on a bus or see a, see it on a football pitch and respond. And so you do the metrics around that and you build it. And, and yeah, we built models using those metrics and you, we, we took the most pessimistic kind of um, response rates that we believed we would see uh, and use that. And uh, they have pretty much proved proved right. And, you know, at the end of the day, 
So being able to give some sort of data as the sort of response levels you expect and just get people to understand that, yeah, you know, um, 997 out of the 1,000 people aren't going to respond and aren't probably going to be interested. But but if you can get those three uh, per 1,000 or whatever that rate is, uh, and then you can, you know, put that into your funnel and you've got all the statistics as to what that can convert into, you can produce business that is profitable for the company and, and also the brand awareness that you're creating going forward is going to generate value for months and years to come. You're listening to How to Grow, a CMO podcast from the CMO crowd. And to those people listening to the show who might be aspiring to become a CMO, what practical things can you tell them that they could start working on right now? So this goes back to the start of the interview, really. I would say make sure you're starting to build relationships and uh, with, with people outside of marketing, with other stakeholders, and understand understand what they do and understand their, their kind of drivers and their and their uh, what motivates them. So start with sales. So I talked about this, you know, that there's always this cat and mouse thing traditionally between sales, between sales and marketing. You need to break down that barrier and work with sales and have a constructive relationship with your peers in the sales team because at the end of the day, they're your route to success. It doesn't matter how many leads you produce, but if the sales team don't close them, you're not going to be successful and the company's not going to be successful. So you start to build your your influence if you like and and your reach outside of just the marketing team into sales that's a really good step then start talking to product management to um you know to the product development teams and understand what they're doing and and see what they yeah because often they're really hungry really keen to get um input from the market you know they want to know how people are using their products and, and what the market is saying what's going so you can get really good interaction with them and, and, you know, make sure you're talking to finance. I mean, marketing should always have a really strong relationship with finance. You, you know, get yourself a finance business partner, get, get someone in your accounting team who can work with you and help you do better at budgeting, articulate your value better. That, you know, those people in finance really uh, understand how to, uh, how to manage data and also how to, how to put business cases and, and put uh, value, assign value to spend, for example, or investment. Uh, so get finance on your side and start working with them. And I think, uh, you know, and then your operations team, your customer support team, all of those start building relationships there. And I think it's that, that's, that's what lives, lifts you above just being a marketing person and into being a business person, uh, part of a management team that runs, uh, that runs a company. And, you know, someone said, I've always had this view that I'm part of a management team that's growing the company rather than just I'm in marketing. And, and someone, you know, just recently said this to the executive team at, at Iris. We were, we were, we were doing some sort of um, work with a, with a business coach. And, and, and he said to us, what you have to remember as the executive team is this is your first team. So my number one team is the, uh, is the exec team that runs across the whole organization. Then my team, you know, my, my day-to-day team is the marketing happens to be marketing, but my, my kind of, uh, day-to-day team is that whole exec team across the business and if you have that cross-business view that's what that's really what it, it means to be part of a an executive team or a c-level team have that really wide broad horizon now 
you clearly are on a tricky type rope at times, you know, trying to balance all the different needs of the business. But where does your own personal balance come from these days? Yes, interesting. Uh, I think early in my career, I didn't necessarily have enough. Um, you know, sometimes you can get very absorbed in your career and you don't do enough outside of outside of uh, work. Um, I've always um, had a passion for animals and, and um, had dogs and cats and chickens, uh, would you believe, and then things. And then um, I, uh, I I was brought up actually in a sort of farming area. Anyway, long story short, I have a small farm now. Uh, with um, horses and uh, sheep and pigs and all sorts. Um, and, and the one thing actually that I find that takes me away from everything and work is riding riding horses. Um, so I, my wife is um, a really big horse person and has ridden and trained horses all over the world. And I started to sort of ride uh, a bit more. And the one thing, when you're sitting on top of half a ton of animal that could bolt at any time or throw you off or kill you it really focuses the mind and you completely forget about work you can forget about the stresses of day to day and you just concentrate on on uh, on that so for me that's uh, that's something i do to get away from the day-to-day stresses just concentrating on staying alive david yeah absolutely i can completely imagine that You're listening to How to Grow, a CMO podcast from the CMO crowd. Now, I just want to move on now, just before we end, to a quick fire round. And this is the time when I ask you questions and you have to respond immediately without too much thought. So just what pops into your mind. So if you can answer uh, these questions as fast as you can. Number one. Complete this sentence. The qualities I look for in my next exceptional hire is? Passion. Lovely. What is something most people get wrong about you? Uh, They think I'm quiet and introverted because I don't tend to talk if I don't think it's needed, Uh, but I'm not. (laughs) I can vouch for that. You're a great talker. Number three, you're under pressure to deliver a big project at work. You're behind and the deadline is approaching. What do you do? Communicate. Always rather don't hide away and try to uh, try to hide it from the whoever it is you're trying to deliver to. Just communicate. Tell them what's happening. Tell them what the challenges are. Give them a plan as well. Don't just say, oh, it's really hard. Give them your plan as to how you're going to meet the deadline or, you know, meet uh, whatever it is they need to do so saddle up and ride that horse so number four how will the role of the cmo change uh i think it will increasingly it is increasingly about being part of the the wider team so it's almost it sounds crazy but less about marketing and more about being part of part of the management team understanding the the strategies and the challenges of the whole team and then contributing to that and less focusing on the day-to-day marketing activities. And finally, what do you do to switch off? Well, I talked about riding horses. That's a big one, Um, as I said, uh, and and everything else associated with looking after animals. Uh, And other than that, um, I will, you know, time to time, I'll, I'll watch a bit of Netflix or BBC or whatever at the end of the day just to chill out and switch off. Any top 
series that you can highly recommend? I've been watching The Apprentice, but that actually drives me mad. <laughs> because I keep kind of shouting at it. That's not what business is like. I think it's portraying this crazy idea of business um, that's wrong. But it does show you who you don't want to hire anyway. To be fair, I think it's more of a comedy show. Thank you very much, David Turner. It's been great having you with us today. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. How to Grow a CMO is brought to you by the CMO Crowd and the Marketing Practice. The CMO Crowd is a community for senior B2B marketing leaders to network, share opinion and discuss challenges. If you would like to find out more about how you can join the crowd, visit cmocrowd.com.